welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 157, recorded February 9th, 2014. So today we're going to finish off Malibu's run on Deep Space Nine. And And we're going to do it with two comics, one of which is pretty doggone short. And the other one is pretty doggone long, so they make up for each other. We're going to do the ultimate annual number one. Which ultimate, is fairly long. ultimate, ultimate. Several different little stories in there. And then one of the very first Malibu comics that came out that we we kind of forgot about because it's so small. They released two Ashcan, basically they're advertisements. They had like, you know, five or six pages, or I guess maybe, maybe ten pages. Uh, the first one they came out with was just interviews and stuff that we're not going to cover. But the second one did have an eight-page short story comic in there. Which is what we're going to review today. Right. Hostage situation. Right. And these, I think, were inserted into Hero Comic, if I'm not mistaken. I'm uh, pretty sure. Okay. It, or Hero Magazine. It was, a, it was a comic book magazine of the 90s. Right. So, like, Wizard and... Wizard and Hero were, like, the two big ones, but what, Hero's now gone. I think Wizard's still around, but hmm. not like it was. Not familiar with those. Well, because you have the internet now, so you don't really need to wait, you know, once a month to get all your comic book, movie type, behind the scenes stuff. Right. Just jump on the internet, pull up millions of different websites that'll give you all the scoop of what's going on. Right. In the comic books and in the comic book related media world. Good point. We're living in the golden age, Ken. Well, in many ways, I agree with you. Some great comic book stuff going on. Some great TV stuff going on. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of good stuff going on. Right. Next year is going to be the mecca of uh, comic book related TV shows. Yes. There are a lot of new ones coming out, aren't there? Yes, but still no Star Trek. No. And Michael Dorn and maybe having a Captain Worf. That thing's been floating around for a while. A lot of different people talk about how Star Trek has to come back on the TV. Roberto Orki has said that multiple times in interviews, and uh, I read, I'm sure you probably did too, on um, Blaster, they had uh, an interview uh, with... um, Ronald Moore? Yes, right, where he's talking about the idea that it has to come back too, and he actually wouldn't mind doing it if he had a good idea, (laughs) (laughs) which he apparently doesn't have yet, but he'd love to do it if he had a good angle on it. Yeah, I'm hoping that it does come back. And, you know, I think it would need to be set in the movie continuity. Um, so not necessarily with the Enterprise, but with within that same universe. Um, right. You know, because it is the, you know, 50th anniversary, right? Coming up sometime soon. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that it absolutely has to be in the new reboot continuity, but I suppose you're probably right. But... I, I wouldn't mind seeing something uh, again, uh, an offshoot of next gen, but next gen world, but not necessarily in the reboot universe, right. because that, of course, always is a possibility. Yeah, I kind of hope not. Yeah. Well, whatever it com- whatever happens, I think, especially since JJ's not in the driver's seat anymore, I think still Bad Robot's going to produce the the next Star Trek films, right? Right. I think so. So they still have some control going on, but I hope that maybe Paramount will say, well, you know, I don't care really what they wanted, you know, what J.J. may have wanted in the past. We're going with a new TV series. Well, you know, since J.J. came up from TV, you think that he would still see the value of doing a serialized TV episode every week. Right. So, anyways... Yeah. And any way you look at it, because of the fact that, uh, I mean, his production company is still in the driver's seat, 
but he isn't. He's gone on to something else. Then I don't think, uh, unless it's contractually required, which I can't see uh, Bad Robot, Robot and J.J. having that much control over the situation over Paramount, I'd say Paramount has grounds to do whatever they damn well please. It's their property. It's probably not Paramount. It's probably CBS now. Uh, right, Paramount Paramount does the distribution. Okay, well, who, whatever corporate entity owns it. <laughs> right. So, I guess CBS, but... Okay. So, anyways, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Not at all. We're here to talk about Deep Space Nine. There you go. So, um, I guess you want to just jump into the little one, and then uh, we'll get into the big one in a little bit? Please, let's. All right, so, uh, as I said earlier, this is from... The Ashcan Star Trek Deep Space Nine Limited Edition Preview Number 2, which came out in July of 1993. This story is called Hostage Situation. The writer is Mike W. Barr. Painter is Lorene Haynes. Editor is Tom Mason. And letterer is Tim Eldred. So the cover of the little tiny book shows a corner of the space station. Uh, this looks like the model itself, maybe from the opening credits. Uh, and then in like a little oval shows a superimposed picture of all the main cast members just kind of sitting there on the promenade. All right, so the story starts off with the Klingon ship Kittimer's Revenge docking there at Deep Space Nine for a short layover on its way to return a criminal back to Kronos. Odo and Sisko are at the airlock waiting to greet the visitors. The captain comes in and tells Sisko that there's no reason for all the extra security. And then two Klingon guards bring the prisoner in through the airlock. The prisoner has manacles around his wrist. Miraculously, the prisoner is able to slip out of the cuffs, and he attacks the two Klingon guards. He's able to get a disruptor off of one of them, and he blasts one of the guards, point-blank range. He turns the gun on to Odo, but Odo has morphed into a huge Silat, which is depicted here as a huge bear with saber-tooth fangs. The disruptor blast hits the animal, but does no harm. Odo quickly knocks the prisoner down with one of his mighty paws. Odo then reforms and informs Sisko that he was a good choice that he chose the Sealat since they are immune to disruptor fire. The unconscious prisoner is then taken to sickbay for evaluation. In sickbay, the prisoner wakes up and he takes Bashir hostage, threatening to snap the doctor's neck. He and the doctor enter a force field protected room that prevents anyone from beaming them out. In ops, Cisco orders Kira to do some digging on the computers. He also gives orders to Dax and O'Brien to find a way to beam through those shields. One of the ideas to disable the prisoner is to gas them inside the little room, but the medical room counters the gas almost as soon as it's pumped in. Later, Cisco arrives within earshot of the prisoner, and he confronts the Klingon captain. He tells the captain that the prisoner is being set up to die here on the station. He says the prisoner's shackles were loose when he arrived. He also points out that the prisoner is accused of killing the captain's sister and that the captain had planned to get revenge on the prisoner before the prisoner could face trial on Kronos. The prisoner lets his guard down and when he does so, Dax sneaks up behind him and knocks him out. Sisko finishes by telling the Klingon captain that he intends to inform the Klingon High Council of all his findings. The end. Well, that is a short one. It was very short. Light and airy. Yes. And with the, uh, the painted visuals, a lot of times the good half of the little tiny page was, you know, covered with just, you know, Odo changing into a giant bear or something like that. That Right. Looked cool, but it filled up a lot of the, the page. Right. Yes. Now that you're speaking of the <laughs> of the artwork, I fear I must uh, bring up my main complaint with it. Although that it's I, beautiful. I, let me just say up front <laughs> I understand this is a this is advertisement kind of sort of stuff. Not a lot of money put into Ashcan comics typically, I guess. But basically, the painted 
artwork I think I am not a fan of. Uh, there are some panels and especially some characters that are being painted. It looks like a 13-year-old did it. I, I, just, don't, I just don't find it overly uh, pleasant, but it does get the job done. So, I will agree with you. I, I didn't enjoy it as much as I usually do when they're painted art. If it was a 13-year-old, as you pointed, it's still a very talented 13-year-old. I, I agree with that, but... <laughs> and and uh, Lauren Haynes, uh, I'm sure she's an excellent artist. Maybe she didn't have a lot of time <laughs> devoted to this. I don't know, but um, I just I just don't think it. I think it was not the level of quality that I, we typically get in a lot of uh, Malibu publications. Right now, I have this issue, but I did not dig it up out of my comic book box to read Your it. Massive so, collection. So I just read it off the DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the, the page is small, so we're we're already you know magnifying it to read it on our computers. So I think I don't know if that might have had something to do with some quality loss, right? But I agree with you; it's it's not the best. Yeah, but uh, it's fine for what it is. I thought the story was okay. You know, not a lot of time for development. But also no, no time for filler. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, a, that's a plus. Well, you say that, yet there's a page with Morn and Quark, which is 100% filler. Oh. Well, Quark is just taking bets on whether Bashir is going to get his neck snapped or not. Yeah. And I think that just comes down to the fact that for whatever reason, because this is early. I mean, did, did this actually get published before the, the series started or was it after they had a few episodes? I, I think it was after it was already on for a while. Okay. So... I think Morn is a popular character. Uh, Quark is a popular character. I think they just wanted to get him in it somehow. Uh, and I completely agree with you. It's one cell, but it's total throwaway. There's nothing... It, it does not help the story along at all. Right. And, you know, in regards to you saying the artwork's not 100% spot on with the actors, I had to spend a, you know, pretty much... Ha- you know... It's quick read, so it doesn't take you a long time to read it. But I probably spent as much time analyzing page eight as I did reading the whole book because page I eight. could not figure out who knocked out the the Klingon prisoner. Oh, oh, that is my number one complaint. And until you said that, uh, that it was Dax, it was like, really? Because, okay, so I'm looking at the top of the page, and the one panel shows... Cisco arguing with the Klingon captain, and then it looks like it's the the Klingon prisoner is behind the field, and then Bashir is to his right. right. And then the next thing you see right next to it, the Klingon prisoner is is going back somehow, going yeah, you know, obviously affected somehow. And then Bashir is running behind him to get the heck out of there. Is and, that Bashir? See, I don't know. Is that is that him? I think that's Bashir running away. I thought it was Dax. I thought somehow well, Dax got oh, in there okay. and pushed him into the stasis field or something. Well, well, why, well, why would the stasis field hurt you? I don't know. Well, okay, so so obviously we have some... <laughs> there's room here for interpretation. And I just came right out and said in the in my comments, I'm not sure what happened. Yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> I mean, somehow something happened. So, so maybe... So you have a theory... That Dax was involved. Okay, fine. I'm not sure why. I mean, so you thought that it's Dax behind uh, the Klingon there in, in, the, in the photo. Yeah, or in the, I in the maybe panel. somehow she snuck in behind him while his attention was elsewhere and pushed him. Yeah, and, and my theory is that part of what O'Brien did, because he's been working on trying to bring the power down or something so that the field would go down, Right. that he might have done something to trigger, uh, you know... Some kind of a, a feedback or whatever. I don't know. And then, and then, but, but even that doesn't make it that much Bashir sense. Bashir jumps up and runs away from it. That—that's my theory. But okay. um, I, I don't know. I, I think I, my I think I think my theory is just a theory. Yeah. When I read it's it the not first clear. time, when I read it the first time, I thought it was Bashir. And then, you know, reading the later panels where you know Bashir's still on the ground with his hand over his neck like he is in that first panel, I thought, oh, well, he never did move. And kind of 
Dax kind of asks if he's all right, and he, he's kind of like playing it off that, uh, you know, he he let them help him or whatever. I, I don't know. Yeah. So that's why I thought, oh well, that was Dax, but you can't tell because the no. the blast turns everything green, so you can't tell anybody's you know outfit color. Right. And uh, the face could go either way for me. Right. But you do make a good point because at the bottom of the page, it does show Bashir holding his throat uh, in a lower position than Dax. And I, I think you may have mentioned this a few moments ago. But so, so that makes it look like Julian could not have been the one that ran behind the Klingon. Right. Because uh, he's still on the ground at the beginning of the page and at the end of the page. But still, the person running behind the Klingon in the middle of the page, if it looks like anybody, I think it looks like uh, Bashir, but uh, Dax is being drawn with very short pullback hair, which makes sense. That's why she often wore it. Um, it could have been, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, so, unfortunately, huge, huge question mark as to what really happened there at the end. <laughs> Which underscores how, uh, you know, what a rush job this thing might have been. I don't know. Or just that they didn't have enough, enough paper. I, I mean, <laughs> enough pages. <laughs> they paper. Well, if they didn't have enough paper to <laughs> show, to properly depict how the situation was resolved, maybe they should have left that panel out with uh, Morn and Quark. Right. And maybe we didn't need a whole page of Odo morphing into a giant bear. True. And let's talk about that for a second. Often. I think, well, definitely we've discussed it, and I think often the writers of some of these comics, and even the writers of the TV episodes, like to be a bit fungible with Odo's uh, morphing abilities. Right. And, you know, oh my god, how can he go, how can his mask go from a full size down to a mouse? You know, like, how how does that work? Or a fly. Or a fly. Oh my god, that's horrible. Okay, so here's another one. Oh, I'm going to do size of a salat and become this big, huge bear or whatever, uh, a Vulcan salat or whatever. Right. And and just because I morphed into a shape of the salat, I am going to get the characteristic benefits of a salat, supposedly, where they're resistant to disruptor fire. Really? Just because you look like one, you now have the ability to be resistant to disruptor fire because you look like a salat. Right. Yeah, I thought that was uh, not quite right either. No. Now, if he's dis- if he's um, resistant to disruptor fire because he's a bucket of goo, well, I think I'll understand that more than the fact that he shifted into a salat shape. Right. Right. So th- this to me is is probably the worst example of Odo having weird powers um, just because he changed his shape. Yeah, you know I'm always upset about the mask thing, like you said. And then up until this point, I thought the biggest, the biggest problem I had with his shape shifting uh, issues, his shape shifting abilities in a previous issue was when he was able to morph into one of those pirates, and he was able to mimic the pirates so detailed that even a retinal scan passed as the pirate, and he could actually see and uh, multifaceted ways just like the pirates did. Do you remember that? Episode? Yeah. Yeah, Mission? I remember that. Right. Um, I think it was, I think they actually jumped into an alternate dimension or something, followed uh, Curzon Dax or something. I can't remember w- which issue it was, but I thought that epi- that issue was the worst example of him taking on characteristics that he shouldn't have. But right. this one now takes the cake. Oh, you think this one's worse? Okay, I do, yeah. Because that last one was pretty bad that you described. <laughs> Maybe just because I didn't like the bear thing in general and that the bear should not be dis- immune to disruptor fire. Yeah. Disruptor fire dissolves you at the molecular level. There's there's no resistance to it. Uh, so you would think, yes. Even if you're a bucket of goo. Or even if you're a, sh- a Shylot or whatever. <laughs> I agree, I agree. <laughs> And usually, aren't they more cat-like creatures than bear? I didn't remember them being bears, but, because uh, they had a shallot. Wasn't that um, Spock's pet? 
Yeah, Spock had it. It, it showed up in Star Trek the Animated Series, and yeah. then it showed up again in Star Trek Enterprise. Oh, okay. But I always thought they were more, you know, like, large, like, cat-like. Like a big saber-toothed cat. Exactly. Right. That's what I thought I remember, too. But but this guy looks like a really big grizzly bear and with saber-tooths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, I think we're nitpicking it. it. It was eight pages. It was just an advertisement for the most part. Yeah. Although it was written by... Mike Barr. Know, Mike Barr. Who is a very prolific... Uh, usually pretty good Star Trek writer. Right. But, yeah it, yeah. it is what it is. Right. My last comment is the disruptor that the prisoner is using on the Shalot looks kind of like uh, a Captain Pike phaser or laser, whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, does, it really does not look like any Klingon weapon I remember seeing. Right. So Klingon weapons tend to have kind of a configuration a little bit like a flintlock in the fact it's very curved handle in the back going into the the body of the the weapon. And then usually it's like protruding kind of long with some kind of uh, cylinders attaching the the very front emitter with the the, the body of the, the weapon. So this thing looks not perfectly like a Captain Pike phaser, but pretty close. Right. So... A minor and, point, but I just yeah. wonder where they got that design from. And because you do have to connect a lot of the dots here, um, the captain's thought of, or his his evil plan was to, you know, let him escape and get on into the medical bay and and you know do all this stuff just so that the Federation would kill him instead of him going to trial at, on Kronos. Mm-hmm. Which seems weird, because... Don't you have the right of, uh... Yeah, revenge. Can't you just kill him? Yeah, because Worf got away with that. You killed my sister. Here's a batleth in the head. Knock. (laughs) Done. Honor's done. Exactly. Yeah, that seemed weird. And then, also, if this gun is real, which, which now that you point out that it doesn't quite look right, maybe it's not even a real gun. Because if it is a real gun, then... Then the captain let those two... Klingon guards die because when the prisoner escapes, he shoots them point blank, or which at least means, one of them. Right, which means it's a real gun. Unless the guards are in on it too, and they're just pretending to be just. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but the, the whole thing's convoluted. Right, but I was just, I was, I was trying to think. Well, maybe it's not a real gun, and and he didn't really let that guard die. But I don't see how you could fake that. So no, you know, he, he now let that you mention it. Die. Yeah. Well, actually, now that you mention it, that little stick coming out of the front of it with the word pop on the flag that's attached, <laughs> that probably should have told us that it wasn't real. Now, Ken, that's not there for the people who don't have the book in front of them. <laughs> True. I guess you're right about that. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The captain now is worse than is as bad as this guy because he did let one of his one of his crew members died in this convoluted plot for revenge. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense. <laughs> so anyways, anything else? Cause no, I that's, don't. I have no more comments on this one. All right. Well then let's jump into the, uh, fairly large Ulta ultimate annual number one. All right. Okay. So our next one, huh? Ultimate annual. As opposed to the spectacular annual, this is the ultimate annual for uh, 1995, uh, for Deep Space Nine, and this was uh, published 8 December of 1995. And the title is No Time Like the Present. The writer is Laurie Sutton, penciler Leonard Kirk, inkers Scott Reed, Salim Crawford, and Leonard Kirk. Tracy H. Muncie is the letterer. Color design is by Moose Bauman. Interior color by Malibu. Just Malibu. Okay. Editor is Phil Crane. And the line editor is Mark Panacea. The cover features a Cardassian holding a glowing rectangular box of some kind. He looks very distressed over it as it radiates energy at a rate that is frightening enough to stand his hair on end. The Cardassian, that is. 
Kira's head is shown in the upper left-hand corner, dressed as a Vedic. O'Brien is looking back with distress towards the Cardassian. Sisko is in civilian clothing and wearing reading glasses. Another person with a Retinax 5 allergy, maybe? Keiko and Sulu are side by side and appear to have a relationship. They appear to be close to the same age also, though they are from different generations. The planet is Bajor. The year, 2369. The Cardassian withdrawal. The iridium mines are erupting in chaos as the Cardassian occupiers are pulling up stakes. On their way out, a group of Cardis discover a -a one-of-a-kind object. It is a roughly lantern-shaped box made up of unknown substances. It is emitting bright light and other forms of radiation. They ask how an object like this can be in a layer of Bajor that is one million years old and still be intact with a working power source. It is not fully liberated from the rock that surrounds it and they have no tools. The iridium around it makes using a disruptor an explosively bad idea. They receive word the Bajorans are rioting. They must get out of there but they can't take the object. The commander says the Bajorans can't be allowed to have it. They all step back, and he fires his weapon at the ceiling near the device. It is covered with rubble. Years later on Bajor, Miles and Keiko O'Brien are enjoying a view of a desolate valley lit by moonlight. The romantic scene is interrupted by a shadow made by a ship passing in front of one of the two moons. Miles is distracted by it, but his lovely wife brings his attention back to where it belongs, on her lips. The ship lands, and a Cardassian commando unit from the Obsidian Order exit. They dig down and liberate the device that was buried so many years ago. The leader, named Tartak, bends down and lifts his glowing prize from the rubble. The next thing Tartak experiences is that he is on Cardassia, sculpting a beautiful sculpture of a beautiful woman pouring water from a ceramic container. Tartak is being complimented on his work by another Cardassian. The soldier also appears to be an artist of note in another time and place. As Keiko and Miles are still enjoying the night, unknown to them, waves of time distortion are emitting from the mine and washing over them. Miles is transported to another time and place. He is the first officer aboard the USS Rutledge during a space battle with a Cardassian ship. Due to Miles figuring out the phase variance of their opponent's shields, the weapons officer Mr. Caden is able to cut through its shields and destroy it. Yes! The waves of time disruption continue out into space and wash over and through a DS9 runabout. Inside is Dax and Major Kira, who are returning from dropping Miles and Keiko off at the agrobiology site on Bajor. Kira is transported to another time on Bajor when she herself is a Vedic, who is walking among poor Cardassians, trying to help them to find the strength to keep going in a life full of despair. Jadzia Dax is transported to a Trill operating room, where Curzon Dax is dying on an operating table. Both the Trill and the symbiote, her symbiote, is dying. The Dax symbiote that will unfortunately never join with Judzia to form the officer we all know and love. They snap back to the present. Kira is pretty much back to normal, but Judzia is dizzy and ready to collapse. They head back to the station. The time distortion waves make it to DS9. It affects large numbers of people who descend upon Dr. Bashir's infirmary. Sisko asks the suddenly busy doctor to get up to Ops where he can help him work out what just hit the station. Suddenly, Sisko finds himself in his office at a university. He is a professor according to his desk name plaque. Jake is there telling his father with great concern that he has buried himself in his work and shut out the world. He says leaving Starfleet after Wolf 359 was one thing, but leaving reality itself is quite another. Sisko snaps back to the present, Alpha Reality. 
Meanwhile, underground, in Bajor, Tartak, the leader of the Cardassian commando unit, and his men feel very sick. Lesions are forming on their skin, and several are doubling over on the ground. Tartak realizes the box is emitting radiation in more forms than just visible light. He starts to get paranoid and wonders if the Obsidian Order sent him on this mission to get rid of him. A dead man's mission. He moves to grab the device and get out of there, when the device emits another big pulse. On Deep Space Nine, an alternate reality takes shape where Quark and Nog have switched positions in life. Quark is the bumbling lesser brother, and Nog is running things, and better than Quark ever did. He is so cool that Gul Dukat and the Grand Nagus himself are part of his best buddy posse. The scene shifts to a Cardassian ship that is hit by the time disruption waves. A smart young bridge officer reports that they were hit with an unknown form of radiation, and it's disrupting the neural functions of everyone aboard. Back on DS9, in Ops, Dr. Bashir is giving Sisko a similar report. The radiation is similar to chroniton particles, but much more destructive to organic tissue. Sisko puts it together and states that they have been experiencing temporal shifts triggered by the chroniton particle-like radiation. They are interrupted by Kira's call for help. Dax is sick, and they are heading to the station in the runabout. Dax is transported to the infirmary, and Bashir begins treating her. Meanwhile, far away, an alien listening post picks up the time disruption waves. The fly-like alien operator of the equipment contacts one of his leaders of his insectoid race. The Supreme Commander calls for a ship to be readied. He will be racing to the source to reclaim one of the most powerful weapons that was lost on Bajor during their last invasion of the Cardassian Empire, which included Bajor. Back on Bajor, Tartek, the Cardassian commando commander, is officially nuts. He shoots one of his own men and takes off into the night. Scene shifts to the Federation Research Facility on Bajor, where everyone, including children, are sick. O'Brien and Keiko are working hard to keep things together. The insanely paranoid Tartak breaks into the research facility and almost shoots O'Brien. The scene shifts. Keiko is in a garden that she is tending. A very good friend of hers comes to visit, and it ain't O'Brien. It's Mr. Sulu, a very young Mr. Sulu, who has a romantic thing going with Mrs. O'Brien. The shifts become more frequent and wild. Khan Noonien Singh, in 1995, successfully defeats the last of his opposition. Now, nothing stands in the way of Khan wiping out the defective humanity and make way for his genetically superior followers. In the distant past, on Earth, Julian Bashir witnesses Julius Caesar announcing his defeat of the Gauls. The known world is now controlled by a single man. Another shift, and General Dukat is on Bajor, 3,000 years in the past, leading forces of Bajoran as well as Cardassians against the Karg. The Karg is an insectoid race with a huge empire that attempted to take over one too many worlds. The Karg are defeated and their temporal distortion weapon confiscated by the Cardassians. The scene shifts again to the present, where the current possessor of the Karg time distortion weapons, Tartak, is shooting at O'Brien. O'Brien is able to dodge the poor aim of the very sick Cardassian, and is able to finally push him out the door of the research facility. And don't come back! O'Brien figures the bright device the incredibly sick Cardassian was carrying was throwing off deadly radiation and causing their illness. He contacts Sisko immediately with the news. Meanwhile, Tatrix of Karg is speeding towards Bajor to retrieve the time disruptor weapon in order to resurrect their fallen empire. They are engaged by the Cardassian ship that detected the time disruption waves earlier. The Karg ship is able to disable the Cardassian ship, but rather than destroying them, the Karg continue on to Bajor. The Cardassians start repairs. Their commander needs to follow the Karg ship to wherever it's headed 
to find out what they are up to in Cardassian space. On DS9, Dr. Bashir stabilizes Dax and is working on a hydronolin-based cure for the radiation poisoning they are all experiencing. Sisko tells O'Brien they will get the antidote to the research facility via the Defiant ASAP. Sisko and Kira board the Defiant with the medicine and take off just as the Karg and Cardassian vessels come streaking by the station. Since they are heading towards Bajor, Sisko orders a pursuit course. On Bajor, O'Brien has found the Cardassian commando ship. Tartak is tied up on the ground by his own men. O'Brien thinks they are nuts and proceeds to render them all unconscious by pumping big-time current into the Cardassian ship's hull. He picks up the time disruption device just as the Karg enter and take the device from him. Just as the Karg, Dominatrix gloats over how the centuries of failure will be over with the device back in Karg hands, a squad of Cardassians order the Karg leader to hand over the device. Off on the side, not being looked at by the Karg or the Cardassians, O'Brien receives a communicator signal from Sisko for him to move five meters to the west. He does so, and a blinding phaser blast set on a heavy stun blasts both the Karg and the Cardassians. O'Brien picks up the time disruptor and quite quickly turns the deadly device off. Man, he's good with electronic stuff. He beams up to the Defiant. Back on DS9, we find most of the inhabitants have been inoculated for the radiation poisoning, including Judzia Dax, who is sitting up in the infirmary. She explains to Sisko that 3,000 years ago, the victorious Bajorans and Cardassian allies sent the device into the distant past where it laid for a million years until the Cardassian mining activity uncovered it around the time of the Cardassian withdrawal from Bajor. Later, Sisko sits in his office with the device staring him in the face. He is tempted to use it to change the past and the outcome of Wolf 359, his wife's death in particular. Kira's entry into his office snaps him out of it, and he sends the device on a recursive temporal loop where no one will be able to touch the deadly device again. The end. So I don't see a keypad or any type of controls on there, yet Cisco and O'Brien both are able to control it. Exactly. Yeah, on the device, right. That, they, that they've never seen before. Exactly. Yeah. And the fact that O'Brien's able to pick the thing up and say, oh, here's the off switch, mm. where apparently nobody else could, <laughs> seems a little little questioning. And then, yeah, I mean, that could be a switch, but you have a good point about the key thing. How do you send this thing... How do you control what this thing is doing? How do you send it into a recursive temporal loop. That sounds a lot harder than turning it off. Good right. point. I mean, that's something that the TARDIS goes into when <laughs> when it doesn't want to be seen. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how he got this little orb. I, I thought it was going to be an orb, you know, like an orb of time or something like that, but they never actually call it that. Well, yeah, and it's not an orb. It's shaped right. anyway. Right. It's it's like a rectangular uh, lantern kind of thing because it's kind of looks kind of like clear clear glass or clear something on the right. side so you can see what's inside. Oh, you think it's glass? I, I thought it was well, all open. Oh well, I I guess I just assumed that there was something around that th- that helix in the middle, but right. Huh? Yeah, I assumed right. that there was something there. I'm sure not glass because it would have broken, but um, transparent aluminum, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was the big thing that I, I had a hard time with at the end. Just uh, maybe I should use it to stop the the Borg. Oh, never mind. Temporal loop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was that the only thing you had a problem with, Donovan, in the story? <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, I don't know. It just seemed like a lot of fluff. Just you know, with a random panel here with. With uh, Khan, you know, Paige here with Sulu, you know, it's just like, are you jumping through time or are you jumping through alternate dimensions? Because we know that Sulu and Mrs. O'Brien, Keiko, never were romantically involved. 
No. He was an old man by the time right. uh, you know, she was uh, in a position to be in a romantic situation. Right. Right. It, it, I think they just took this opportunity, this temporal disruptor thing, just to explore different ideas. Which and that's is fine. fine. But, but Cisco purposely says to Kira... And I, did, I don't think I... I didn't mention this in the synopsis. But Kira's saying, oh, is this like, uh, you know, the Mirror Mirror Universe traveling back and forth in dimensions? And Cisco specifically says, no, this is a... This is time travel, basically. Right. And it's like, this is more than just time travel. And it's not like you're going back to different parts of your life. I mean, these are alternate realities. Right. I mean, Cisco was... Cisco did not leave Starfleet after Wolf 359, and he didn't go to become a professor. So, right. And Curzon did not die before the the symbiote could be put in Dax. I mean, exactly. Right. Everything they went to at the beginning was like could have been alternate versions of their own lives, and then the second time they go back in time, it's like they were just all over the place, and and nowhere where they went. Could that ever exist? Khan did not take over the whole world. Yep. Julius Caesar did not take over the. You know. Did well, that not, did it, happen. Not not to the point where he they were talking about. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. He so he, yeah. So Julius Caesar conquered the Gauls. That's that's historic fact. Sure. So I mean, so that was France and Belgium and you know whatever. So at least that did happen, where the Khan thing didn't, and Ju- and okay. Julian Bash- Julian Bashir definitely was not back there <laughs> in Roman times, right? But so. again, that looks like Julian, and you were supposed to assume that it is Julian, but he's yeah. thinking in terms of a Roman at that time, you know, because he's, he's like he's a, a Roman would think, right? In the hands of a single man, Saturn and Mars look with divine favor upon him. Yeah, that's exactly. not something Bashir would think. No. But if Bashir was born in that time period, yes. Right. And I, so that must have been what they were saying. It's like, but it's like, huh. And then it, it's actually, although I was not 100% sure of this, but you are, and, and I, I think you're right. It shows Khan in the, the Khan time frame where he's like saying, I've conquered the last of my, uh, you know, people that tried to come against me. I'm all powerful. And then uh, a black man in that time period, which apparently is Cisco, Cisco. Is, is saying, well, Nothing's going to stop him now to wipe the genetic slate clean of of us original defective humans. Right. So uh, there's another case where probably, although Cisco could be thinking that if it was future Cisco, but apparently Cisco there was living in that time period. It just was very confusing. And really, you know, you just got to turn your brain off and say, oh, look, Khan. And, uh, <laughs> right. But and when I thumbed through the book and I saw Khan in this issue, I was like, "Oh man, this is going to be a great issue! I can't wait to read it and find out where that one panel that I saw when I was thumbing through it fits in." And then I get to it, I'm like, "Oh, it's just this one panel. That's disappointing." <laughs> and what's happening doesn't really make any sense. So. No, no. And the only one that could have happened is if if they're trying to say that Keiko is Sulu's. Demora, no Sulu's Sulu's oh, daughter. Oh, Sulu's Demora. daughter. Okay. I mean, if they're Keiko's ancestors, I mean, is is Demora her mother or De- her Demora her grandmother? And maybe Demora's mother is named Keiko, and this was kind of like she jumped into her great great grandmother's life or something. I don't know. That's the only oh, that's one weird. that I could fit in that could maybe have still been in <clears throat> in continuity. You know. But that still doesn't make sense. I mean, not really. All, all the other ones where they were themselves, you know, were were past events that could not have happened or did not. Yeah, because Kira it, it, never was a Vedic, right? And certainly there were not Parkardassians. When I first read that section, I was thinking, oh, it's Kira as a Vedic helping poor Bajorans. But then I look closer, and it's like, hey, those are Cardassians. It's like, huh? I missed that part. Let me. I thought it was, uh, I thought they were Bajorans. Let me go back. Yeah, well, they're not. They're Cardassians. So it's like, oh, that, that makes oh, even yeah, less sense. Oh, yeah, they're right. That makes or, even less sense. It is weird. I, I didn't notice it. 
Yeah. It doesn't help that they're all like this, all just a generic brown color where she's the oh. only thing in that, those two frames that's yeah. colored. Right. Yeah. So right. I, I don't think O'Brien was ever a first officer, but he was in the Cardassian War. So it he makes was. sense that he would be on a ship in the Cardassian War, but it looks like he's sitting like in Riker's spot. Oh, and he has so three he pips. Looks... He has three pips, so he oh, okay. is, he is the commander. Okay, so so that that didn't happen. I mean, he was he was like some kind of a tech, wasn't he, or some kind of or grunt. he was just like a soldier. Right, right. The anyway. way the way he talks about it, he was right. On the front yeah, that's line. right. He wasn't even a tech then. He figured out a, a field transporter or something, and that's what set him on his journey to being a tech guy. Right. Anyway, um, so what do you think about the insectoid card race? They seem like they're, they act like they're part of Star Trek canon, and you're supposed to already know who they are. I, I right. didn't know who they were. I looked them up, and I can't find any reference to them other than this book. So Okay, so it truly was. Because the the existence of the Karg that are basically like a an empire empire building race that at the edge of their their empire they try to take on the Cardassians and the Bajorans and lose. Right. So that's all that's all very interesting history that I had no clue about. And, and the idea that the Cardassians and the Bajorans at any time were allies that was like, huh. <laughs> um. So I thought that was. All kind of interesting new revelation, but yeah, but you never know. Was that was that even real? Was any yeah, of so it you're, real? Well, but it had to be because that's where the device came from, the Karg. Right. So, but interesting point. Everything's jumping back and forth so much about things that are real and not real. Um, hmm. Makes you question what is real and what isn't. Exactly. I'm so confused. So did you get a Wesley Crusher vibe from that Cardassian on that ship? You know, uh uh-uh. On the bridge? Yeah, so the Cardassian on the Cardassian ship, who was basically given like the science report on what was going on, what they were getting hit by to the captain, that's either a young man or it's a girl. Because it's it, it looks like small framed, it, it looks like a young, young youngish person. And the first thing I thought was, hey, a Cardassian Wesley Crusher. So you mean on, on page 25 when... 13. 13. Oh. Yeah. Further. Further? Or yeah, further back, back. Further back. Further back, right. yeah. Right. Um, I guess. I mean, it looks like a woman to me. Well, there you go. And that's what I was thinking. I thought right away it was a young man. But then I looked at it and said, well, that could be a woman too, but... Either way you look at it, not a guy, or not not a typical belligerent, <laughs> mature uh, Cardassian male. Right. Yeah. She has her hair make, makes it look like it's a a woman, and not because usually the men have shorter hair or yeah pulled back, where her hair is kind of down. Looks like a Cardassian woman. Okay. Hairstyle. And that's fine. I interpret it as a young guy with long hair, but yeah, yeah it, it could be, be a woman. It could be. You No okay. other features give away its gender, so... Yeah, there's no breasts, but it could be a thin person. Sure. Uh, I mean, the plus they wear that armor, armor no you what. can't really tell. Right. Mash those breasts down. <laughs> do, do we even know if Cardassians... I mean, how often do we see Cardassian females? Uh, there's quite a few episodes where we see Are there? Cardassian females. Okay. Yeah. Plus, um, what's name has a daughter? Um, oh, uh, yeah, Jacot. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. So uh, let's see what else. I-, I thought the Keiko Sulu thing was like totally whacked. I mean, you did a good job of trying to make some kind of sense of it, but there was no sense to it, and it was just uh, an excuse to include Sulu on the cover. Right, false advertising. Yes. Well, he was in the issue. It made no sense, but he was in the issue. Sure he was. <laughs> he wasn't? No. <laughs> it just didn't make any sense. No, I, I was not the biggest fan of this story. Um, yeah. It just seemed like an excuse to have 
a page of something that doesn't make sense here and a page of something that doesn't make sense here and yeah. we're trying to we're, you're supposed to buy that it all happened well as long as you turn your brain off <laughs> and don't think don't ask too many questions or try to make too much sense of it I thought it was kind of an interesting issue that they were exploring a lot of different ideas right but I just wish it was more consistent as you know this is jumping through actual history and, and it was something that really could have happened instead right. of alternate realities right I agree I mean and, but if you're going to make it alternate realities then then don't have Cisco purposely saying this is just time shifting right this is not alternate realities so you can't have it both ways so oh and if you were going to ask about a Cardassian woman uh, look on page 6 just saying page 6 page 6 just saying that kind of uh, will take away all your uh, oh, doubts oh, that right. there is the another naked, gender. The naked <laughs> woman. Well, I know there's another gender. I was just wondering what kind of breasts, and you're right. <laughs> so when he's sculpting, which Donovan is referring to, there's actually a model where, which, quite frankly, judging by how long it takes to make a statue, that woman is really going to be tired <laughs> so th th there's an actual Cardassian woman, pink-skinned, by the way, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And you don't see her breasts from the front, but you do see them from the back side. So she definitely has them. She definitely does. And yes, you're right. She would be very tired holding that pose where she's holding up like a, an urn yeah. or a, a water pitcher of some sort. So right. yeah, her arms would be straining by the time he finished chiseling away. <laughs> exactly. Anyways, um, good point. But yeah, I agree with you that it should be more cohesive, and you can't have somebody say it's one thing when it's obviously something completely different. Agreed. My last comment, and it's actually kind of a positive one. I I really liked, even though it doesn't make sense, the the communication to O'Brien that says, "Chief, take a step <laughs> five meters to the west." Yeah, exactly. Right. I did. Uh, that was okay. good. <laughs> that was actually pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So so you've got the carg that come down just as O'Brien comes in possession of it because he knocked out the Cardassians. And then then as soon as they get their hands on it, the carg, you got the Cardassians coming in to say, "Uh, give me the give me that." And then you got Cisco up in in orbit just saying, "Screw this stuff." And then just takes care of business. I like that's good. I like that. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm yeah, I thought it was good. Yeah. And that's all. I have nothing to say. I'm done commenting also. All right. And and there's two more stories. And there are. One I will have <clears throat> comment on or two. The second one I will not. Right. So we've got two more stories. The next one is called The Negus's New Clothes. And it is much shorter, thank God, <laughs> than the first story. Uh, it's medium. It's kind of a medium length. And then the last one is really small. It's called Small Victory, and it's a really short one. So let's talk about uh, the new clothes first, and then we'll get on to uh, the Small Victory story. The Grand Nagus comes for a visit to impress 3,000 new trading partners and puts pressure on Quark to provide lodging at Deep Space Nine and also to put on an impressive ceremony that will showcase the Grand Nagus himself. Quark is quite nervous right now. Everything starts to go wrong, of course, when the impressive robes the Nagus brought with him mysteriously breaks down into dust. With Jadzia's scientific help, Odo confirms it was sabotage. Quark talks Garak into a rush job to create new robes by the next morning. Garak delivers, but those too are destroyed. However, the saboteurs that blew up Garak's shop are caught. With no time left, Garak offers the only thing he can, a holographic projector he uses to give clients a test drive of their outfits that Garak designs but has not yet physically created. They go for it. The ceremony begins, and the Grand Nagus is resplendent in his grand holographic robes. Unfortunately, about halfway through the procession, the batteries give out, and the projector stops. 
the Grand Nagus is there walking in all his glory, naked as a jaybird. No one says a thing, and somehow Quark is not executed. The end. Right. In the end, they do have Quark trying to put a spin on the story, Emperor's New Clothes, where he yep. tells Cisco, oh, well, if you can't see how beautiful his clothing are, then you're just... You know, you must have poor taste if you can't see how beautiful those robes are. You know. Yeah. Okay, so so the Nagus never finds out that he was naked in front of everybody halfway through the procession. Uh, I guess he doesn't care. Or we're just not going to worry about that because this is a light, airy. It's good Story. to be the Nagus, that's all he says. Cause that's still, what he says at the end. They're still cheering him on. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's good to be the Nagus, because he's still in the procession. Procession, right. and he doesn't realize he's naked. <laughs> now, odds are the procession's going to end. He's going to look down, and, uh, well, maybe not. I'm just <laughs> thinking too much. And I didn't think that Ferengi had that uh, big of a taboo with uh, nakedness. I mean, their women aren't even allowed to wear clothes ever. <laughs> uh, I I somehow think that the wrinkly, prunish Grand Nagus is probably <laughs> not going to want want to put it all on display uh, <laughs> in front of all these different aliens. But right, I don't know. It, it was it was a light story. Um, it was light. It was I kind of liked the haggling between Garrick and Quark. Yes, that was that was kind of funny. Yeah, which I skipped in the short synopsis, but yes, right. Yeah, the part that I really didn't like was the uh, the nude bomb that the other Ferengi had that would just disintegrate clothing. Mm-hmm. Ah, come on. It, I don't know if you remember it, but there used to be a TV show called Get Smart. Oh yeah. With Don Adams as a right. as kind of a spoof of uh, James Bond. James Bond, right? Right. Well, after the the series ended, they did make a couple of TV specials or TV movies. I don't remember how long they were, but in one of them, it was called the Nude Bomb. Mm-hmm. And wasn't that a movie movie? Like uh, was the it a movie movie? I thought it was a made for TV movie, but it all happened before Whatever. I was born. So I'm just right. like, man, for me, it was always on TV. Right. But um. But in it, it, it was, you know, somebody in chaos found a way to create a bomb that wouldn't destroy people or or buildings. It would just disintegrate all the clothes. And that's exactly what this thing does. It's a grenade that you can throw into the <laughs> shop. It explodes, and it just dissolves clothing, which yeah. is, well. you know, for this kind of story, it's funny, but it, it's just like, oh, come on. There's other ways to destroy his clothing, Um did you really have to create a chemical compound that would just dissolve clothing? Yep. Well, they did it. <laughs> and, I guess they were big fans and, and, of Maxwell Smart too. So yeah, probably. And of course, the whole point was this: was these were guys from a competing Nagus, or a competing guy that wanted to become the Grand. Yeah, this another competing, competing Nagus. Nagus right. right. So there's Neguses, multiple Neguses around, but only one Grand Negus. Grand Negus. That's the way I took it, yeah. Yep. So, light, airy, you know, fine. I could have have lived well without it, but lived my life fine, but that's fine. I I enjoyed it for what it was. Right. Six pages of just fluff. Exactly. Eight pages, And shall we go on to the fluffier story? Right. Yes, we have an even fluffier story, which is a lot shorter. And this one features Worf. Yay! On Deep Space Nine, as a regular. It's called Small Victory. Worf is helping Odo put down a riot on the promenade. During the fight, Worf and a rioter falls from the second level of the promenade to the first and spooks a visiting diplomat's daughter's cat. The cat takes off and the kid is distraught. Worf tells the crying kid he will find the damn cat, and he takes off. After a lot of trouble, Worf finds the cat and returns it to the kid. The end. Now, uh, I actually put more in the synopsis than I think uh, Donovan would. So what, what? what's your synopsis, Donovan? I said earlier I wasn't going to talk about this one. I said there was one story I would talk about and one story I wasn't. 
Just kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the story doesn't even warrant talking about. <laughs> My synopsis would have been, uh, Worf helps a kid find her, her, her cat. The end. That's it. That that's pr- that actually does that does the job. <laughs> that's about as much as it needs. And since Donovan doesn't want to talk about it, um, <laughs> now, it, I mean, do you have any comments on it? I have one. If 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 you make me talk about something, <laughs> go ahead. You must. He sends the girl to Quark's to get a yes. drink. Yes. And tell tell Quark I will pay him back for whatever you buy. And then the cat runs into Quark's. Yeah. Yeah. And Quark and Worf says, "Quark's establishment." Anywhere but Quark's. Mm. That's why. You just sent the girl there. That would, to me, be the perfect place to send the cat. Yeah. And then the cat just jumps into her lap. Yeah. And the end. Just save four pages. Right. (laughs) Save save, save four pages of nothing. Uh, What did you, what other comments might you have? The only comment I have is this is uh, one of the most egregious examples of useless filler. (laughs) <laughs> to get up to what sixty five pages, sixty four pages, whatever it's supposed to be. Right. That, um I I'm done. That's all <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, let's just talk about that sixty four pages. So there was eight pages of this story. Mm-hmm. Eight you you page- counted pages. Well okay. no, it it has page numbers at the bottom. So they start at one on the first page. So it gets to eight. The Emperor's New Clothes, eight pages. That's sixteen. Alright, and then there was uh, how many pages in the other one? 40. Yeah. So, 16 plus 40, 56. Where's the Where's the other 8 pages? I don't know. Because uh, there's only well, 4 Okay, four so did, did, did you count... Oh, okay, you did or didn't count the pinups? I did not count the pinups. Okay, That's... well, the pinups should be counted also. And, okay. and by the way, they are pretty good pinups. Yeah, I'd rather have 8 pages of that than the cat story. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, Worf looks pretty cool, you know, jumping above a bunch of people, and he's coming down with his bat lift and gonna kick butt. So that's pretty cool. Right. And then there's a nice shot of a starship that kind of looks like a Reliant, but not quite. Right, because the nacelles are on the. Well, no, the Reliant had the, no, the nacelles on the bottom. Yeah, the, the the nacelles are the same. It's just they've got some kind of. Star Warsian kind of like what is that a phaser turret? I mean, what is that supposed yeah, to? Yeah, I don't know. It looks like something that was on the end of the X-wing fighters. Yes, exactly. Right, that's exactly what it looks like. And they got one on the other side too. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a it's a spin. Right. And it looks nice. It's it's cool. And then there's a useless shot of O'Brien. And Deep I Space actually Nine. like the O'Brien one because it shows. Yeah. yeah, it shows the Enterprise D. And Deep Space Nine. And Deep Space Nine above him. Tying together the two series he was in. Okay, that's fine. the two series. Gotcha. But I I just... O'Brien himself, it's it's a reasonably accurate drawing of O'Brien, but it's like... I don't care. I like that one. I like O'Brien character. It's just... I don't don't know that we needed to have a, a portrait of him, but okay. And then the last picture shows... Or actually, it was the first one, but it shows Locutus, Cisco... Jake, Board Cube, and the Saratoga. Yeah. Which is a pretty cool picture. Mm-hmm. That would be a good cover for um, a novel or a comic book. I would buy that book. There you go. Although I would have bought it if it was just a black page that said Star Trek on it. <laughs> and you have. So there you go. <laughs> so so there's a second one, and we have our two specials. It was the Laurel and Hardy episode. episode. The one Laurel and Hardy. And one little one. Oh, good point. Good point. <laughs> but next week we'll be back with three normal-sized issues. We're going to do Deep Space Nine, stay, staying with Deep Space Nine. But this time we're jumping over to Marvel. So issues uh, number one, two, and three. The start of the Marvel run. Right. Which we will be doing for... They didn't have it for too terribly long. They had it for about a year and a half. So we should get through it pretty quick, especially since we've already done the early voyages and untold stories or whatever that one was that was set in the uh, motion picture era. Oh, okay. In the motion picture era. Okay. Yeah, we did the Pike one and we did the motion picture one. Right. Okay. Cool. 
Looking forward to it. Yep. So and with back that, on the station. Yeah. Yep. But we get to see a, a new a new take on it, maybe. All right. Well, that's it. So I guess we'll close off and be back next week. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.